We're turning now to God's word, uh, Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along right there in the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into a city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, uh, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we are immensely thankful that you have made yourself known to us through your holy word. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to enlighten our minds, instruct our hearts, guide us, teach us as we give ourselves to the study of this passage. And we pray that these words would not just live in our minds, but that you would um, bring them to bear on our hearts, on our wills, um, our deepest loves, our passions. And so uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning as we uh, come to your word. We ask in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So over the next three months, we are going to be doing an in-depth study into the cross, the meaning of the cross. These are the last three chapters of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew 26, 27, and 28. And as we look at the, the, the narrative of Jesus' death, these last two days of his life leading up to the cross, um, we're going to find that every passage tells us what the meaning of the cross is from a completely different angle. And you know, some of you might have asked that, what is the meaning of the cross? I know it's the central thing to Christian faith. It's very important. And it turns out, to answer the question of the meaning of the cross, there's many answers to that. Because it is so layered, it's so deep. You know, the most important event in the history of the world, of course, we should expect that. And so last week was the first week on that. We saw that one meaning of the cross is that God, you might say the most in person in the world, 
you know, loved from before the foundations of the world, became an outcast on the cross. The cross is the place of the outcast. He took the place of the outcast so that outcasts could be embraced by God and brought into his family. So that's the first meaning of the cross, is the place of the outcast. But this week, uh, we look at the cross from a totally different angle, uh, from what has been called, historically been called, the problem of evil. And the problem of evil really has two forms to it. There's what you might call the philosophical problem of evil, and there's the emotional problem of evil. And so the philosophical problem of evil goes something like this. If there's an all-powerful God, then that means he could stop evil if he was all-powerful. And uh, if God was all-loving, then he would want to stop evil. And, but evil exists in the world. So that must mean that either God is not all-powerful or he's not all-loving. And if he's, not, if he's neither of those, then the God of the Bible doesn't exist. And so it's kind of a classic argument against the existence of God. But um, the emotional problem, that's a philosophical problem, but the emotional problem of evil may be um, a question that you've dealt with more personally. It says, if God really loves me, Why has he brought suffering and hardship into my life and into the lives of people I care for? It's still kind of a philosophical question, but it's it's really a question about our personal trust in God. Is God good? Can I trust him? And so the riddle of the problem of evil is this. How do I trust God is good when the world is evil? How do I trust that God is good when the world is evil? And, uh, you know, that riddle is at the very heart of the whole purpose of the Bible. You could say that the Bible is essentially the story of what did God do about evil. The Bible begins by telling about why there's evil in the world. Humanity has rebelled against God, and it says why there's evil, and then what did God do about the evil? And then the Bible tells this whole rich narrative of God's interaction with an evil world. And like every riddle in the universe, the key, the answer that unlocks the riddle, is Jesus. And specifically, his cross is the key that unlocks the riddle of the problem of evil. And so today we're going to look at the contribution that the cross makes to this this big question in our lives. And so I want to say two things in particular this morning. This is what they are. The first, the cross answers the philosophical question of the problem of evil. And the cross, and second, the cross answers the emotional problem uh, question of the problem of evil. It's, the cross speaks to our head and speaks to our hearts. It speaks to both. And I hope uh, that you'll see how profound it is as we look at this passage together this morning. So, first point, the cross answers the philosophical question of the problem of evil. And, you know, the, the, the question of the problem of evil in many ways is a question about, you know, who is responsible for all the evil in the world. You know, there's so much sorrow and there's so much suffering. Is, it, is God responsible for that or is man responsible for that? And actually, that's, a, that's an interesting question when you ask the question of Jesus dying on the cross. Who's responsible for Jesus dying on the cross? Was it Judas from this story? You know, the chief priest who's scheming against him? Was it Pilate who's responsible for Jesus' death? Or was Jesus' death on the cross, was that God's plan? Was that God's idea? Whose plan was it? And, uh, you know, this story that I just read to you is, uh, is about Judas Iscariot, the, Jesus' friend who betrayed him, and Jesus calling him out at the Last Supper, and he says, you're the one who's going to betray me. And in this passage, maybe you caught this, this is a really fascinating verse, verse 24. Look at what verse 24 says. 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It's fascinating. Jesus says Jesus is going to die because it's God's plan. It was written long ago, long before Judas ever came along. But Judas, Judas is still responsible for his decisions before God. And it's like, wow, fearful. God is going to judge Judas for his crime this, you know, against an innocent man. And what this passage shows us is two essential truths about the character of God that the Bible, two paradoxically, paradoxical but essential truths about God that the Bible teaches. This is what they are. Is that on the one hand, God is a judge who hates evil and stands against evil. He is only good, and he can only judge evil, and, and he, evil grieves him, the Bible tells us. But the second truth is that God is also king, who is the sovereign lord of his creation and controls everything that happens in his creation. Both truths are equally important, equally taught in the scripture. So I want to show you both of these in this passage. So first, God is the judge who hates evil. And, you know, I mentioned this. This verse talks about Judas' betrayal of Jesus, and you, you can read it there in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? There's this, Judas doesn't even have a price yet. He's just like, I'm giving him over, you name the price. I don't even have a price. I mean, there's a kind of pettiness to, to, to Judas. And, they said, and then they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, if that piece of silver is a denarius, then this, this is about a month's wage, 30 days' work. You know, it's, it's a little bit of money, but not a lot. To, you know, this thing, to betray the man he's given his life to. And it says, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so then after this, Jesus states how severely... God will judge Judas for this act. This is what it says. In the end of verse 24, look at what it says. Jesus says, It would have been better for, him, for that man if he had not been born. God is going to judge this crime against the innocent Lord Jesus, this betrayal. Now, I know for many of you, the whole thought in the Bible that God is a judge, you know, that he gets angry and he's wrathful and that all people are going to stand before God and give an account for their life, you know, you just say it's kind of a turnoff. I don't think of God as angry. I think of him as loving and isn't anger kind of a human thing that we're putting on God? But um, I'll tell you, uh, the judgment of God is in a key piece to answering the problem of evil, the, qu the question of evil. And um, to give you an example, Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who um, you know, lived through much of the, the violence that happened in the Balkans in the 90s. And he'd wrestled a lot with, you know, how do I think about violence in the world and injustice and forgiveness as a Christian? And what, you know, what does Christianity have to say about that? And one of the things uh, that he observed is that for people who have experienced kind of unimaginable evil, suffering, wrongdoing that's done to them, how important it is that the evil is named and condemned, that it is remembered, that it's exposed. And, uh, you know, he says, you know, it's true, many of the people that are survivors of the Holocaust uh, or that had family members who died in the Holocaust, many Jews had said, you know, if you... If we want justice or healing from the Holocaust, at the very least, we have to remember that it happened. We have to name the crimes that were done there. And we have to condemn them. And the people that did those crimes must be punished. 
That's what they say. That's the only way there could be healing in the world. And, you know, we experience that as a nation. You know, when we experience a tragedy in our nation, we expect the president to come before us and to condemn the act, you know, and to say this is wrong when something has been done to us. One of the most important answers to the problem of evil is that God is a judge who will hold all humans responsible for the evil they do in this world. And as we ask the question, you know, why does God let evil go on? One answer to that is he won't always do that. There will come a time where he will stop the evil in the world and he will hold evil to, evildoers to account. And I'll tell you, this is a really important truth just you know, personally in our church. Because you know, if you're a Christian, you have the love of Christ in you. There's a certain kindness and openness that lives inside of you that's not always you know, in the world. And so you're going to find throughout your life, many people are going to open up to you about some of the deepest, hardest things that they've experienced in their lives. And how you respond to them, you're reflecting to them what God is like when you respond to them. And they're looking to you, what does God think about this, this, all that's happened to me? And if you just say to them, you know, well, God's in control, he works all things for good, you're not really showing them who God is. Because God is a judge who is angry at evil, who is grieved by evil, and they should see that anger and grief in us when we hear about harm or abuse that has been done to them in their lives. We should mirror to them what God is like. And so actually, it's not so much that the problem of evil is proof that there's no God. It's actually just the opposite. The fact that we're so troubled by evil, that we get so angry at evil, is a clue to us that we've been made in the image of the God. If, you know, if, if made in the image of God. If, if the world is just, we're a bag of atoms and there's no meaning to this universe and nature is just animals killing one another, why do we have a problem with suffering and evil and injustice? Why are we angry about it? But if there is a God who is just, who has called us to love one another, that is the reason why we get angry at these things is because there is a deep moral framework that tells how we should live. And when... The world doesn't match that framework. We should be angry because God gets angry. And so the first, first truth about God is key is that God is a judge who hates and stands against evil. Now, paradoxically, the Bible also tells us a second thing that's true about God is not only that he's a judge, but he is the true king over his creation. He's the sovereign one who controls all that happens within his world. And so as much as this passage shows us that Judas is culpable, you know, Judas was scheming and he's talking to the chief priests and he's making plans and he's going to be responsible for his crime against Jesus, it also shows in a number of verses that God is carefully orchestrating all that is happening in these chapters. Look at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go to this, into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. My time is at hand. Jesus understands there is a divinely calculated order and timing to all the events that Jesus is about to experience. Divinely ordered and calculated. This scene, you know, of Jesus being handed over, he's going to die, it's not evil just running wild 
in having its own way and fulfilling all its own purposes. That's not what's happening in this passage. It is God's ordered purpose unfolding. And then, of course, Jesus, I already read this, verse 24, Jesus puts it this way. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus says what he's experienced is a story that he is enacting and that he is experiencing is a story that God is writing that he is a part of. And um, that's an amazing thing. Here is the greatest crime. This, these pages that we're reading about is the greatest crime in the history of human, in, in human history. Here is love himself, the embodiment of love. Here is God's token to the world that I love you, of salvation. I will forgive all your sins. I will embrace you. And uh, he is the one for whom the mountains want to cry out in song and that the trees want to clap their hands for him. He is goodness himself. He is the fountain of all goodness. And what did we do with him when he came? We crushed him. We handed him over and he was innocently murdered as a criminal. That's what we did with him, is supreme injustice. And yet Jesus says, this is a story that God has ultimately written, not man. Man is not the one who's in control of this whole thing. Now, um, that says to us that you and I also are living in a story that God is ultimately writing. And, you know, a number of theologians say, you know, how do we understand these things? Now, on the one hand, God has opposed the evil, and yet he's writing a story with all kinds of evil in it. How, you know, how is that possible? And, you know, there's all kinds of analogies that people have come up with to try to understand uh, the relationship between these two things. You know, some people say, well, you know, God's the pilot and we're the co-pilot. Or, you know, God's the teacher and we're the students and he kind of keeps us orderly and stuff like that. And most theologians say, you know, none of the analogies work. But some say there's one analogy that's particularly powerful. And it's the analogy of an author to his novel. And, you know, when an author writes a novel, the author is in complete control over everything that happens in the story, right? In their world that they've created and everything that happens to those characters. But often, good novelists will say, you know, this character kind of took a life of their own and, and they had to do this. And you say, they had to do it? You wrote that. The character didn't have to do it. But so there's this certain maintaining of the integrity of the characters in the story. And yet the, the, the author is, is in complete control of over, over everything that's happen, happening. And we also understand that the best authors write tragedy and suffering into the lives of their characters. The best authors who love their characters write suffering into the experiences of their characters. And we don't think that the author is evil because he or she included that tragedy. We often think that they are actually wise. So to give you an example, I. I've been reading the Lord of the Rings to my kids. We're reading the, the Return of the King, which is the, the, third, uh, uh, the third book in the Lord of the Rings. And if you know that story, there's a great battle in it, in the, in the plains of the Pelennor, right by Minas Tirith. And uh, at one scene, uh, King Theoden, King Theoden's the, the king of this nation, Rohan, who they all ride on these horses. And uh, he's confronted by this dark rider who rides around on these flying beasts. And the dark rider pounces on King Theoden, and King Theoden's crushed by his horse, and he dies. And King Theoden's this beloved character who's had this transformation in the story, and you come to love him, and then he dies. And so one of the questions is, who killed King Theoden in the book? 
Was it J.R. Tolkien or was it the Dark Rider? Well, in some ways, both of them did. Both of them are responsible for his death, but in different ways. We all say that the Dark Rider is evil, but J.R.R. Tolkien was probably deeply grieved by Theoden's death when he wrote it in there. It was probably agonizing to write it in there. And the act, the moment in the story was evil. God names the events that happen in our lives as evil. And yet the story as a whole can still be good. And that's one of the things, as you read the Lord of the Rings, anyone who reads the Lord of the Rings will come to the end of that story and say that J.R. Tolkien is a wise and good man. We still believe he's wise and good, even though he wrote a story that included tragedy and suffering in it. This is true about God as well. He stands against the evil in the world, and yet he is writing a good story, and we trust that the story that he is writing will be good in the end. And of course, this is a paradox, right? How these two things work together, we can't explain. J.R. Tolkien didn't make a real world. That's a problem. That's why it's only an analogy. It's just a pretend world. God made a real world where this is true. And, uh, but we need both of these truths in our life. We need to hear that God stands against the injustice that's done against us and done in the world, that he is grieved by the sorrows and brokenness of this world. We need to know that about God. We also need to know about God that evil is not running the show in this world, but God is. And his purposes will be fulfilled. We need both of these things together. And so, uh, as we ask, you know, how do they work together? We don't know. All the important doctrines in the Bible are paradoxes. God is three and he's one. Jesus is fully man, he's fully God. How do these things work together? We don't know. We can't explain it. But we know that we hold these two truths in tension and paradox. And you might say, well, you know, I can't imagine how God could appoint evil in the world and yet it still be good. I don't know how it's possible. If you don't think that's possible, then you look at the cross. The cross is the great crime of humanity. And it's God's great act of love at the exact same time. It's brilliant. Breathtaking. The brilliance of God, if you want to trust him, we look at the cross, okay? And so here's the answer to the philosophical question, which actually really speaks to our hearts also, that God is a judge, he hates evil, he stands against it, and God is the sovereign king who directs all things according to his own purposes. And we see both these things to be true in the cross of Jesus. But I, I don't even want to look at the philosophical question. I want to also answer the second question related that the cross answers the emotional question of the problem of evil, which says, how can I trust a God who appoints or even allows suffering in my life or the life of my loved ones? How can I trust a God who would appoint suffering in my life? How can I say he's good and open, keep my heart open and soft towards him? I want to highlight three answers from this passage. First reason why we should trust God. Suffering was experienced by God himself, so we know that he loves us. One reason you should trust God is because he himself suffered, and that's an indication to you that he is good and can be trusted. And you, uh, you see this here, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, 
one of you will betray me. Betrayal is, of course, a big part of the theme of this story of Jesus' death, betrayal. And I think for some of you, you know, our suffering comes in different forms. For some of you, the biggest suffering trial you'll experience in your life is a betrayal in a personal relationship, someone that you trusted, someone that you opened your heart to, someone you depended on. And uh, you might say, how can I trust God who allows this kind of heartbreak to happen in my life? Well, even though we don't know why God allows those things, we know that he does not sit far off in heaven keeping his hands clean of the suffering. He's not like a puppet master. He was way off. He's like, oh, all my little creatures are suffering and I'm up here safe in heaven. That's, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the only one who's come down. He himself was betrayed. He himself experienced injustice. His body was torn apart. He was left alone. All of his friends scattered. He was left alone. You know, for some of you, that might be your great trial for your you experience in your life is a profound loneliness. God himself has shared in and experienced that loneliness. And so, whatever suffering we face in this life, Jesus has also suffered it. And so the reason we hold on to him in the midst of our sorrows is because though God's ways may be mysterious, we can be confident that he is good. And that he has good purposes because he came to share in the suffering with us. Okay? So, first reason to trust God is because he too has suffered. And so we know he loves us. A second reason to trust God. Suffering is essential for a full and meaningful life. You know, as Americans, you may maybe haven't registered that thought before that a, to have a full and meaningful life, you will have to have at some points profound suffering, disappointment, loss, grief in your life. And because, you know, uh, the people you meet in your life who deeply sacrifice for others, who pour their life out for others, who, you know, take great risks, have profound compassion, you will find a thread in their stories that they've experienced hardship. And that hardship, though they would never repeat it, they would never ask for it again, has actually been an important part of their story to make them who they are. And Jesus confirms that that's true, right? Look at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after breaking it, uh, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shows us in these words that giving your life away, pouring your life out for others, can only happen when your life is broken. Your life has to be broken in order to pour out your life for others. And, uh, you know, you ask the question, who had the most meaningful, fulfilling life in the history of the world? is this man who's about to be alone. His body's going to be torn apart. He's going to experience injustice. And uh, he's going to die on the cross. Is the most meaningful life. This transforms our whole understanding of suffering and its role in a meaningful life. And actually, it's not only possible to have suffering and have a meaningful life. Suffering is an essential part 
of a full and meaningful life. And Jesus shows that to us. And of course, many of us have known people that way. And I, you know, I also want to say, to go back to the, uh, the novel analogy, thinking our, of our lives as a story, you know, many of the best stories have had people who have long periods of sorrow and disappointment. And we still say it's a good story. And I, you know, I want to imagine that. You know, uh, imagine someone has decades of sorrow in this life. Loneliness, physical pain, um, betrayal. Is it possible to have decades of that kind of sorrow in your life and then for God to come and lead us into an eternal age where we are healed and flooded with his love and that we live for endless ages remembering his faithfulness to us. Let me ask you, is that a good story? Is that a meaningful and fulfilling story? Could a good God write that story? And that's what this is telling us is yes, he can because the third reason Why we should trust God in a world of suffering and evil is because suffering is not the final word. Suffering is not the final word. And you see this in verse 29. Jesus concludes this meal by saying, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in in my Father's kingdom. Jesus says the reason he is able to face the cross is because he sees on the other side of the cross there is a kingdom coming. And I'll tell you, that kingdom, you may not know, what is the kingdom? Jesus tells us that the kingdom is the renewal of all things in this world. God's good world, he is not going to scrap. When Jesus comes again, he will renew all things and that those are in him, every tear will be wiped away. Evil will be undone. Death itself will experience a reversal and we will live in a world that is flooded with the very presence of God. You will feel the warmth of God's love on your skin. You will feel him in the air that you breathe and he will flood your life with his love and you will live for endless ages using your gifts to glorify God and serve others and love others and being creative and, uh, and enjoying God's many good gifts and then giving your life back to him for endless ages. That is a kingdom that is coming in Jesus. And... Uh, Ultimately, if we are in Christ, all suffering we face in this life will follow the path of Jesus, which is death and resurrection. And so all of a sudden, you you look at the Bible's answer. What's the Bible's answer to evil? The problem of evil. It is a problem. The answer is overwhelmingly robust. This is what God, what does God have to say? What has he done about evil? Well, first of all, he's a judge. He is the judge who stands against evil. He grieves with those. That's what we expect a good God, a good judge to do, to grieve and to stand against it. And yet, evil is not running wild and having control of God's creation. God is ultimately in control and he's directing all things according to his purpose because he is the king. And, and, uh, and so, but we also know that he's directing all things. He loves us and he is good. And the reason we know that is because he himself, the king, has entered into the suffering and experienced the loneliness and sorrow and the physical breakdown, all of that himself. And he has transformed suffering to be an essential part of a full and meaningful life. But ultimately, he has promised us a happy ending where all things will be made new and he's given us a share in that new creation 
And we can be sure that that will happen because it's already begun in Jesus' resurrection. Look at that. It's breathtaking. All of that. There's not just one answer. There's five answers right there to what has God done about evil. And they are astoundingly breathtaking. No one else has an answer to that except the cross of Jesus. And so if you want to both honestly and hopefully face the evil and suffering of the world, you have to look at the cross. This is God's answer to evil. And in it, we see the amazing brilliance of God to use the greatest evil of man to perform his greatest act of love. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, you know each of our hearts. You know the hearts of each of those who sit here and hear these words. Each person here who deeply wrestles with the question of, are you good? How can you be good as we live in such a harsh world? Lord, we pray that the truth of the cross and Jesus' resurrection would not only comfort us, but would it be the thing that gives us endurance, the thing that we can hold on to as we eagerly await the day where you will come and make all things new. Send your spirit. Teach us these things in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.